before you turn away from that prayer page, I believe there's a, a typo or a missing word in the last prayer request. Somalia pray that a non-conversion law under consideration will be passed. It should say not be passed. A law that would um, make it illegal for a Muslim, for example, to convert to Christianity. So you just be aware of that. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read the first four verses. So if you'd like to look there. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As a people, a nation, we've been sliding. We might even be in a free fall. The political scientists Robert Putnam and David Campbell report that young Americans, I quote, young Americans are dropping out of religion at five to six times the historic rate. In the last two decades, the overall number of adults claiming no religion, researchers call them nuns, N-O-N-E-S, has doubled and they were the only group in the Putnam-Campbell report whose number increased everywhere in the country, from the secular Northeast down to the conservative Bible Belt. Even more alarming is the fact that 73% of 20-something nuns came from religious homes. And 66% of those were described as de-converts. A generation ago, 5 to 10% of 20-somethings claimed to have no religion. That number has now jumped to 30 to 40%. To say that's a disturbing trend may be an understatement. We're drifting into dangerous seas, and most of us don't even know it. And it's not just young people. As Joe Aldrich pointed out once, most of the people who failed in scriptures failed in the second half of their lives. That's a warning to me. In the Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis wrote that the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. No doubt he spoke from experience. As we've already seen in our study of this letter, people don't usually turn abruptly from a living faith in Christ. They just sort of drift away from it. But people don't drift in a storm. They're wide awake and at the tiller when the storms blow. They're paying attention. They're asking the captain for orders. It's when things get calm that people drift. Drift, you see, doesn't just come from our circumstances. It comes from within us prone to wander, the song says. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's also a warning to me. The man who wrote that song 
wandered and ended his life far away from the Lord. That drift often comes with little notice. Maybe a moment's uneasiness, sense that something's not quite right, but that's all. And then we're carried off into places from which we might not return. In his book, Tempted It Tried, Russell Moore writes about a man named Temple Grandin. Grandin's a scientist who's researching gentler ways to kill cows. Now, it's not that he's particularly sensitive to animal suffering. He just wants to keep them calm because hormones get released when a cow experiences high stress levels, and that lowers the quality of the meat. So there's a science about how to keep cows calm and other animals before they're slaughtered. His research has led to an obvious but important truth. Cows, like humans, are stressed by change. So the key is to keep everything in their lives looking and feeling just like normal, right up to the moment of no return. So Grandin has devised this plan. Workers, he said, shouldn't yell at the cows, and they should never use cattle prods, which produce lots of stress. He insists that if the cows are kept contented, and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. So just don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them until the moment you slit their throats. To that end, Grandin came up with a technology that has changed the way big slaughter operations work. In his system, cows aren't prodded off the truck, but they're led in silence onto a ramp. Then they go through a squeeze chute, this gentle pressure device that mimics the touch of a mother nuzzling her calf. And the cattle continue down a ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns, no loud noises. The cows experience the sensation of going home, something they've done a hundred times before. As they wander along that path, they don't even notice the moment that their hoofs leave the ground. A conveyor belt lifts them gently upward, and then a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They go from being livestock to meat, and they're never alarmed by any of it. The process has been nicknamed the stairway to heaven. Is there a message there for us? Always do what comes naturally. Don't question things, especially don't question yourself. Do what everyone else seems to be doing. Ride the stairway to heaven. But watch out, it may be the conveyor to destruction. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The first thing here and in your own study of the Bible to notice is the word therefore. Here it could be translated on account of this, or this is why, or because of this, we must pay more careful attention. Because of what? because of what the author has been telling us in chapter 1 about the greatness of Jesus Christ. It was not a peer who brought to us the message of salvation. We're not even just responding to a superior. The message that we received didn't originate with a prophet, however great he or she may have been. It came from God himself through his own son, who was superior even to angels. Therefore, we must pay better attention. Something else about the therefore in this verse. Our author uses one or the other Greek constructions translated as therefore 16 times in this letter. What that tells us is that he wasn't just interested in writing great theology. 
He wanted his readers to see what theology means in daily life. Now, with time constraints and sermon schedules, it was necessary for me to separate these first four verses of chapter 2 from the the message of chapter 1, but they hang together. Our author frequently introduces a theological concept this way throughout the letter. He thinks through it carefully with his readers, and then he gives them a therefore. He tells them what the theology means for their lives, and that's what he's doing in this section. Notice how these verses wrap up the entire first section of the letter, from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4. In the opening lines of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, our author wrote about the word of God spoken through the prophets and then later through his own son. As he concludes this section, he returns to that idea. He likes to wrap things up and says, in effect, since God has spoken to us through his own son, we had better pay attention to what we've heard. The King James Version translates that, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Heed is, is from the Old English as related to the word head, and for that matter, the word hood, where the King James Version says, therefore, give the more earnest heed, we might say, so get your head into it. In Henry VIII, Shakespeare has Cromwell say of the king, the king is opening letters that were brought to him, and Cromwell's watching. He says of the king, presently he did unseal them, and the first he viewed, he did it with a serious mind, and a heed was in his countenance. That's what our author is looking for from his readers. Is there a heed in their countenance? The Greek word here is derived from roots, meaning to hold toward. That is, to keep something in front of you. The imperative mood, uh, uh, the command form of this word is translated often in the scriptures as be on guard, be on guard. Some of the things we're told to hold or pay careful attention to are the public reading of scripture. That's what's going to be happening here starting November 1st for about an hour on Tuesday evenings. Uh, to preaching and teaching, that's 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. To forgiving those who sin against us. It's all too easy not to get our head into these things, to avoid them. Scripture places special emphasis on paying attention to the things we've been taught or the things, as in our passage, that we've heard. That fits perfectly with Jesus' own instructions. He told his followers, Consider carefully what you hear. And then warns them that those who don't hear well won't hear anything. The emphasis on hearing the Bible is impressive. The word appears in 160 verses in the Gospels alone. And 146 more times in the rest of the New Testament. Pay careful attention to what you hear. Because God is speaking to his people. At home, we have an old um, Seth Thomas school clock in our living room that I got from my dad, and I think he got from his dad. It was in my dad's barbershop for 100 years, I, I don't know. But I have to wind it probably every five or six days, and it makes a rather loud... Um, when our boys were younger, they would often have friends over at our house, 
And we would go to bed, and sometimes we'd wake up, and there would be kids in our living room. We didn't know would be there. They'd be all over, all over the floor and on the sofa. And very often, that clock would be stopped. <laughs> so one of those kids would get up, and he would stop that pendulum. He was paying careful, albeit unwilling, attention to the sound of that clock. Karen and I can go week or weeks at a time without even noticing the tick-tock of the clock. We don't pay careful attention to what we hear. But Jesus, and now our author, warned against hearing without listening because he knew that whenever we hear without listening, our ability to respond is diminished and our hearing, our God hearing, is compromised. So Arthur says, pay more careful attention. We must do that. The verb must, and it is a verb in Greek. It's hard to translate in English, but something like it behooves us. The verb must only appears in Hebrews three times. Our author isn't one of those people who's always saying, you must do this, you must do that. When he used the word, he meant it. In fact, he only uses it one other time of his readers when he says that whoever seeks God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when he says, pay more careful attention, keep this in front of you, uh, have a heat in your countenance, get your head into it, he is deeply earnest. Our spiritual lives depend on it. Now, it's not just that. Our lives depend on it. We don't have a spiritual life and a real life. We just have a life. And it is inescapably spiritual. Paying attention to what we've heard has implication for the success of our entire lives. The danger our author envisions is that we'll drift away. We have to pay more careful attention. That is, we need to hold on to the things we've heard or we'll drift. But what things have we heard? Well, first, in context, we've heard the word God spoke through his son. Jesus Christ is the messenger of God and the message. If we ignore him, we drift. But secondly, we must pay attention to what we've heard that God has spoken to us individually. See if this plays with you. Perhaps in the past, God's spoken to you clearly about some action you were to take or refrain from taking. You heard him, but you didn't act immediately. You thought about it. You tried to figure out how to respond. You didn't want to hurt anyone. You didn't want to upset the apple cart. But as each day passed, the motivation to act decreased. You found reasons to justify your lack of action. When the memory of what God said came to mind, you put it off, ignored it, and then it slowly stopped coming to mind at all. That's why the Holy Spirit says, and our author repeats in chapter 3 in verses 7 and 8, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hearts are not hardened. I don't think we get this. At least initially, they're not hardened by stubbornness, but by neglect. The language the author uses here is very similar to that chapter 3 passage. In both places, he's talking about the same dangerous reality. But there, instead of talking about drift, he talks about wandering, about hearts that wander and go astray. A few years ago, Dateline ran a story about a 13-month-old Canadian girl named Erica who somehow wandered out of her mother's bed and out of her house 
and spent the entire night outside in the Edmonton winter in Alberta wearing only a diaper. When her mother, Layla Nordby, found her, she appeared to be totally frozen. Her legs were stiff, her body was blue, all signs of life appeared to be gone. Doctors later said that her heart stopped for an hour and a half. Her body temperature dropped so suddenly that she went into some kind of suspended animation. Erica was treated at a children's hospital nearby, and God helped doctors and rescue workers bring her back to life. They still call her the, the miracle baby of Canada. Her, they say now that she has no brain damage after her heart being stopped for an hour and a half, no brain damage, and that she's going to live a normal life. Now, here's my point. It's possible that some of us have wandered away from our father's house. And our spiritual vital signs are almost nil. Our hearts are hardened. Our spiritual reflexes are stiff. But God sent his son to come and find and save us. He knows how to restore us to life and health. We must pay, though, more careful attention to what we've heard. Three, verse 2. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation, that is a broad, inclusive word, takes in both intentional and unintentional offenses. Every violation and disobedience, that's a much narrower word, that takes in only intentional disobedience, received its just punishment. Let's pause there a moment. This sentence provides the conclusion to the first part of the letter. In rhetoric, it's called an a fortiori argument. In other words, if this is true, and we know it is, how much more is this true? If the literally through angels spoken word, that's the message delivered through angels who are servants of Christ, was binding and violations received their just reward, the NIV says punishment, but that word is almost always translated the other way. Then verse 3, the through Lord spoken word, the salvation message delivered by the Lord himself is exalted high above angels, is even more important. How are we going to escape if we ignore it? Verse 3 now. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The question, how shall we escape, begs the further question, escape what? The word that's translated escape here is used seven times in the Bible. It's used of, for example, Paul escaping from Damascus when he was being hunted down. It's used more frequently of escaping judgment and or destruction. Our author sees history, both personal history and cosmic history, headed for a climax. And a very similar passage to this in chapter 12, down to the same a fortiori argument, our author writes, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, and here's a quote from the Old Testament prophet Haggai. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So our author sees the universe as headed for a jolt. 
And what is true of the universe is true of individuals. Our lives are headed somewhere, and that somewhere is judgment. That, that is probably the 21st century's least favorite doctrine. But it is everywhere in Scripture, including in this letter to the Hebrews. Man is destined to die once, chapter 9, verse 27 says, and after that to face judgment. Our author takes for granted that apart from the salvation God offers and that Christ died to provide, no one stands in that judgment. But there's a way of escape. The Lord himself announced it. God has confirmed it. Now, it would be a mistake to think of this salvation merely in terms of avoiding hell. The salvation God provided through Jesus and that the Lord himself announced is about being whole. It's about being what we were made to be. It's about living in relationship with God. It's about being transformed in Christ's image. It's about entering glory. Of course, those who are whole, those who are what God made them to be, who live in relationship with God or are being transformed into Christ's image, will avoid hell. But you can't leapfrog over those things to get to the escaping hell part. It doesn't work that way. What you would be leapfrogging over is what the Bible calls salvation. Now, our author's been speaking in general terms so far. He's going to get more specific, especially on the subject of salvation as we go through the letter. But I'm going to follow his example and speak in general terms. If your commitment to Christ has become less important to you than other commitments, if you have neglected to listen to God speaking through his son, if God has spoken to you about taking or refraining from some action and you've been ignoring what he said to you, I urge you to pay more careful attention. Don't miss what God is saying to you. The consequences are serious. Last year, carmd.com published a survey they did it online. They took, had people on their site answer questions. And they found that one out of ten adults, and the, the, the survey included something like 2,500 people. One out of ten adults in America drives a car with a check engine light on. Okay? I'd love to see how many of us are driving a car with a check engine light on. <laughs> Half of those have been driving it with the light on for over three months. Another 10% have been driving that way for a month or two. When asked why they didn't do something about the light, respondents said things like, it's running fine. I can't afford to take care of it right now. People say the same kind of things when God's check engine light flashes. God, things are pretty busy right now, and everything seems to be going okay, so I'm just going to put this on hold. Or God, right now I can't afford to pay closer attention to what you're saying. I mean, I'm trying to pay closer attention to the market, to my new job, to the football standings, to my relationship. There's always something. But we need to pay more careful attention to what we've heard from God. We need to get our heads into it, to hold on to that thing, Hold it before our eyes that God has spoken to us and act on what we know. 
If God's check engine light is flashing in your life, do something and do it now. Let's pray. Lord, we heard about how these big operations don't prod their cattle because they don't want to stress them. But I pray that you'll prod us, stress us, do whatever it takes to bring us to the place where we hear your word and obey. Grant us a severe mercy, if necessary. For Jesus' sake, amen.